Hello and welcome to this session of Newcastle Writers' Festival, which is aptly named All at Sea. It's coming to you from my home in Sydney. I'm, in, I'm Susan Wyndham and from the home in Melbourne of writer Lucy Trelaw. Now, Lucy's novel, Wolf Island, was one of my favourite books of 2019 and I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you about it, Lucy. Wolf Island seemed uh, like a prophetic dystopia to some extent when it came out last year. Now it's seeming more and more like a possible reality as we <laughs> face drought, bushfires, coronavirus, and who knows what else is coming as we socially isolate and uh, grab uh, packs of toilet paper and food from each other. It's a mad world we're talking from, but it's a wonderful time to talk to you, Lucy. Hello. <laughs> hello, hello, and thank you for that lovely introduction. It's lovely to be here and, and to be speaking with everyone. Thank you. That's great, isn't it? Um, Lucy, when you wrote uh, Wolf Island and when it was published last year, you couldn't know what was going to happen in the coming months. But this is a story about Kitty Hawk, an artist in America who uh, has chosen to live alone on an island off the west coast of the United States, which is gradually sinking into the sea. Uh, has been doing for years, has been become faster because of climate change. It's being overtaken by salt. And uh, meanwhile, on the mainland, anarchy is taking over as um, immigrants are coming up from the south and being uh, confronted by the residents. And there's fear and there's violence and there's a sense that everything is out of control. Um, I think we can relate to a lot of that at the moment. We're not quite at that stage, but how interesting. I wonder what were the circumstances and the ideas that you were thinking about when you did write the book? I think one of the things that was um, uppermost in my mind was this feeling I had reading about American politics, that there was this creeping quality of out of controlness. And I could see that mirrored quite a bit in Australia as well, this kind of um, strange feeling of the world breaking down just in these very almost gentle ways. But I was thinking of that as the beginning of something worse. It seemed to me to have kind of portents of something um, more maybe potentially catastrophic, but of, a, of it representing a general sort of breaking down of of what we think of as civilization, of civilized behavior, of the ideas of um, of caring for the outsider. We like to think that we're a kind of generous spirited nation, and I'm sure the United States would like to think that as well. It's you know it's the foundations of that country, um, and I could see that being eroded. And everywhere I read, and everything I read seemed to reinforce that idea. And, and I could see that mirrored in the kind of breakdown of landscape and, uh, and, and landscape as a result of climate change, sometimes as a result of sort of natural factors, but they seem to have a very strong metaphorical connection to me. And um, so I think it was just wanting to explore those connections uh, that led me down this pathway. Why did you choose an island in Chesapeake Bay off the east coast of 
the United States, you know. And well, that's what my publishers thought. <laughs> well, I think it's a wonderful setting, but uh, surprising. Yeah. I, um, I was doodling around on the internet one day, procrastinating from what I should have been doing, and I came across this uh, extraordinary image of a house, just a, a two-storey house, quite a substantial house, taking up almost the entire surface area of an island. And there was this little kind of bulldozer, a sort of bobcat pulled up at the front door, like a family car. And that was used to just hold, hold their water at bay. They would kind of bulldoze up these ramparts of soil to hold the water at bay. And I, as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, my next novel. I, it was as easy, easy as that. And, and almost immediately felt these misgivings. I, you know, how on earth would I write a novel about such a contained setting? And everything after that was about resolving the problems that that setting um, set up for me as, as a writer. How would I respond to that? How could I get out of the technical difficulties that that presented? Um, yeah, but it was, a, it was a very interesting and fairly drawn out process at each stage trying to work that out. You had to imagine yourself into this place because you hadn't been there, although I think you no. went there later. Yes. Uh, yes, and I, I, I wrote up to a certain point. It was um, it was about how I would actually achieve this sense of inhabiting that world. And I, and I could write up to a particular point, but there came a time when I just thought I have to go and visit it so I can write about what that place feels like. And I went on two long uh, trips to that area, one in winter and one in summer, of about a month each, and just drove thousands of miles through this region and stayed on one of the islands for a couple of weeks and just rode around this island. And it was pretty boring in some ways, but it was also incredibly fascinating from a writing perspective. It's just that if, if I wrote a kind of tour guide of this island would be, I rode up the road from one end of the island to the other and checked out how things were going up at the other end and I rode back for lunch and then I went out riding again. But I felt like I, um, I sort of rode myself into that world. And, and in the driving, I kind of drive, drove myself into it as well. I um, just, it became familiar to me. Were you in the same kind of complete isolation that Kitty Hawk is in? Or were there people around you? There, there were some people around and they took an interest and they knew pretty quickly that I was a writer from Australia. That word spread quite quickly. And they're incredibly hospitable people. But there are these vast areas of the island that are completely empty. They're just these windswept marshy reaches with these drowning roads and pathways in them. And it was very easy for me to imagine that as an isolated place and for me to imagine living in that as an isolated world. And what is happening there? I mean, these islands have been sinking for many, many years, haven't they? Is that... Uh, more, I mean, did it happen before climate change? Has it been accelerated by climate change? It certainly has. It's a, it, it's an, a, I mean, it's always been a mutable landscape, and in this, you know, they've done archaeological work and discovered that um, the land's always sort of been rising up out of the water or subsiding into it, and it's in a subsiding phase naturally, anyway. Um, and so there's all sorts of 
archaeological relics, Indian, you know, um, arrowheads and things that keep on getting washed clear. The island that I was on used to be connected to the mainland um, and to all of the other islands around there. But, um, and so they, they feel, the people who live on those islands experience them as um, mutable landscapes. They think it's always been changeable. But that rate of change has accelerated vastly. And now there are really good mechanisms for measuring exactly what the loss is. And the loss is, you know, acres and acres and acres of this land a year and the houses do drown. And everywhere you go, you can see these extraordinary um, shacks old oyster shanties that have just collapsed like sandcastles at a beach, um, these very silvered sorts of buildings. So it's, it has this incredibly poetic end of the world, end of time quality about it, even while you're riding around and you yourself in a modern way. You know, I'm a modern person. I live in a modern era. Yeah. So it feels like you're riding around in the past. And it's a little bit like all the islanders are doing the same thing, but they're all, you know, it's business as usual for them. Whatever is, whatever they can do, they will do. They just persist. And I think you brought that into your book that people try to carry on in their normal lives. Certainly Kitty does. She tries to cling on to her place for as long as she possibly can until circumstances shock her out of it. Um, it's, it's a bit of a lesson for us now, isn't it? I mean, here we are in these extraordinary circumstances in our world, and yet daily life has to go on. Can you, can you see some lessons from your book for us now, or for us now, <laughs> the way that our lives are now reflecting back on your book? One of the things that, that, that we, I mean, writers can imagine and that we can see happening around us is that we, we have to keep going. We can't afford to just curl up in a ball and say, that's it, I'm done with life. We have to persist in a way. That is the that is the kind of animal drive of being a person. That that we want to look after the people we love, and and if we've got a little bit of spare give somewhere in our world, we'll try and look after some other people as well. And I think um, that that is one of the things that was apparent to me when I was uh, travelling around this region. That there was this strange combination of a, a kind of wariness towards the outsider. But then this great hospitality and warmth kicked in. You know, what, when they've made their assessments about what kind of person you are, are you a threat? Are you maybe going to expose something about them that they don't feel comfortable with? Um, once they've made up their minds about what kind of person you are, they were incredibly hospitable and um, very generous spirited and lovely, absolutely lovely. But I was aware all the time of my status as an outsider. And I think we see that around us all the time now, um, generally, even before the coronavirus um, situation kicked in. Um, and, and we're coping and managing with things in much the same way. You know, we have to keep going. Uh, and so we do. Um, and also, but, but people don't. I always thought that people would sit around being really mopey and depressed, but they're not. And I, you know, despite everything, and it's quite a difficult situation that everyone's in, I don't feel especially mopey and distressed. I'm 
fortunate, I guess. But I also think um, it's a fascinating time that we live in. Even this extremely difficult time is, is, is very interesting and I'm very interested to see the way things are playing out. And yeah, not always in kind of uh, gratifying or um, pleasant ways, but they're still really interesting. Mm. Kitty is shaken out of her solitary life of making art and writing, uh, mm. trying to keep her garden growing and so on, by the arrival of her granddaughter, who she hasn't seen for some time, along with three other young people. And they are running away from whatever's going on on the mainland. And she has to take them in and their survival and her care for them becomes the driving force in her life. And in the end, they have to leave the island as surveillance appears and the world starts to intrude on them. And they really go on a road trip, don't they, up through the United States, through dangerous circumstances, people suspicious of them, and uh, they're amongst the runners who are coming from the south. You don't fully explain who these people are, but they seem to be migrants or refugees from southern America over the Mexican border, things that we see happening now. Um, but as we're also seeing now, borders are closing and it becomes really hard just to move through the United States. Again, you had to imagine yourself into what's well, a bit of a, a thriller, really. It's, it's, um, I was very tense reading this part of the novel, the second part that takes us through um, their escape, <laughs> their escape, <laughs> relative safety, we hope. And uh, I, I wondered, um, I mean, America, of course, is particular because some people do turn to their guns when they're frightened and suspicious. Um, not quite the same in Australia, one would hope. But again, how did you imagine this scene? Did it, it's like a movie in a way. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it was one of those. Again, I, I was so absorbed in what was unfolding in America. And, and, but I was thinking also about this being a kind of metaphorical Australia that I was writing about. So I never mentioned that they're in the United States. I just leave it for people to, to suppose that that's the case, but also to extrapolate the Australian situation. But uh, uh, if every bit of that, in a way, rises out of things that I read. And... So although a lot of the problems that I'm talking about are happening in the southern states of America, I could see that as a sort of creeping tide, this increasing sense of anarchy and lawlessness, although I wanted it to be sort of low-key as it was there in the United States at the time, and a sense of, the, uh, of a kind of moral order uh, and of actual justice, not the law, still having some kind of uh, moral gravity to it. Whereas what I could see happening was um, this creeping tide of justice, uh, of justice being overtaken by these new laws that were being enacted so that it became legal to lock children in cages instead of that being 
utterly grotesque and reprehensible. Um, and so I was looking at that kind of uh, erosion of morality and erosion of justice happening. And, and all of those things were written about really extensively in newspapers, especially in the first year or so of Trump's presidency, when he was enacting all sorts of horrific um, measures to, to, to uh, you know, just to make life as awful as possible for anyone coming from south of the, the United States border. But also all of those, those travels up through the United States, that those are so much part of those routes, the refugee routes, the, the drive to get to Canada. And there's all sorts of funny little back roads um, through the United States to, to achieve freedom in Canada. And that kind of is replicated or it replicates the journeys of um, escaping slaves. And the Chesapeake Bay is right on one of the big underground railway routes. It's um, off the coast of Virginia and Maryland, isn't it? That's right, yeah. But there's, uh, there's all of these signs all the way through there talking about the underground railway routes all the way through to Canada from there. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and I just think these resonances through time and geographically across the time that we find ourselves living in um, made it a very kind of compelling series of um, locations and metaphors that, yeah. that are worth exploring, yeah. And it shows that any of us really can be uprooted and turned into refugees by... Absolutely a small yeah. or a large change in our circumstances that we yeah. don't see. I think there's some bit where Kitty says, um, yeah, she looked at the people walking through the town and she said to me, they seemed like dreaming creatures because you know, they had no idea that their life could change as quickly as that and, and they could be completely uprooted. And I, I was really struck by um, uh, this terrible diaspora of Indians having to return home as a result of the COVID crisis. You know, we've got climate refugees, we've got um, economic refugees and uh, and geographical refugees, and now we've got COVID virus refugees. And I I just think um, there's always going to be some people who will be uprooted by whatever the disaster is. And uh, that that one to me is particularly horrifying. The 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 great um, hardship that they that they're living with. So, I mean, Kitty's hardship is pretty slight. It's minor compared to those, like, really life-threatening hardships. Yeah. yeah. Well, Kitty's is a story of love and family as mm. well as disaster and drama, but it's also a story about art. And I think at this time in our lives where we're seeing our arts industry and everyone who creates art really under terrible pressure, mm losing jobs, losing places to show their art, publish, talk about their art. It's, you know, we're all in it. And uh, Kitty holds on to her art through all these circumstances. She, would you like to tell us about her makings and also why she writes at this time? Because that's an important part of the structure of the book. She, she works in both these ways. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Kitty. Kitty is a is a bricoleur in a way. She's a she she finds objects on the beach, all the beaches all around the island, and also in, from the homes that the abandoned homes of the island, and creates these artworks that she calls makings. 
and um, I got very interested in this this whole art world while I while I was writing. It's called outsider art in the United States, and it's a uh, in, like it just it bubbles with energy. This art form, and they 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 have this great emotional resonance. The pieces that people make, and um, but it was an idea that kind of emerged very slowly out of the writing. I had her make these creatures, sort of totemic uh, beings that she calls her watermen. They're enormously tall, probably twice the height of a man, made with these bull skulls and great curved horns, and they act as the guardians of the island in a way. And uh, and so that, that uh, from that developed this idea of that being the thing that she really loved to do. But um, as with a lot of artists, she was very used to, to um, working in an un uninterrupted way. And so she begins writing in her notebook when, when her granddaughter and her, and her friends and the refugees arrive. And it's a way for her sort of processing what's happening and stilling her mind um, so that she can create. It's a, yeah, I think it is that it's creating a shape for the world that she finds herself living in the changed world. And in that way, what she's doing replicates what a lot of writers end up doing, I think. We, we write around the world that we live in, trying to make sense of it, trying to understand, um, trying to understand what's happening around us. And uh, yeah, and so I think that's what Kitty's doing. But I, but I think art has such an, an I mean, it has multiple multiple places in the world it's important for so many different reasons and and one of those is not only to document the times that we live in but it is also to explore and to create something out of something out of a world that might seem to be disintegrating so in this way i think that all of us not only writers but people who are living now trying to work out how to create life around us from these kind of fragments of the, the our, our normal lives. Um, we, we've all become makers of our, of our own lives mm. at the moment. And, and I can see people experimenting with possibilities. You know, maybe if I go out with one friend, that will be all right. And you can see them in the parks a little, little distance. And, it, and it's just them making a life from the fragments that we're permitted to have and uh, and from what we can imagine for ourselves. So I see a lot of um, a lot of connections between art and life as it's being lived now. Um, yeah, I find those things really fascinating. And you make something very beautiful about this dark time that you're writing about. Your language, your imagery is absolutely exquisite and powerful and uh, that's what our artists do. I think you must have worked a long time on the actual writing of the book. It's uh, very sensual. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful writing and um, people should not be put off by the thought of this, this rather grim picture at times because it's beautiful to read and uh, it's alive and it's full of warmth and, um, and very exciting. Lucy, I wanted to ask you um, about what you see as a trilogy that you're writing. Your first novel, Salt Creek, was set in South Australia following several generations of a, a rural family and based partly on, on true people in history. 
Um, and you see that connecting with with Wolf Island. And yeah. you're also, I think, now working on a third novel. And you told me that you had had to cancel a trip going back to South Australia to do some research. And I hope you'll be able to do that in future. But I just wondered if you'd talk about the bigger picture of what you're looking at in these what seem like quite different novels. Yeah, they are. And as Salt Creek, as Susan said, is, um, uh, as you said, is, is historical. So it's set in the 1850s, I think it finishes in 1875. But, and, and this is, is me looking back and kind of understanding, I think, what my interest is retrospectively because I don't build out of an idea and then start writing a novel. I, the ideas that I'm exploring become apparent um, often in the aftermath. But I think with um, Salt Creek, one of the things I was looking at was the beginning of colonialism or the beginning of the introduction of capitalism to a particular system. So it's that moment of change when a whole, when an entire world is irrevocably altered by the intrusion of something alien. And uh, with Wolf Island, I was looking in a way at the dying days of capitalism, of a, of a world that's breaking down. So all of the pillars of capitalism, um, including a kind of stability of a population um, and of a, a climate and geography that is stable, is breaking down. Uh, and and the things that people have relied on, stable income, stable home, um, stable social order, are all disappearing and people are having to respond to that. So it's like the end days. It's like the very opposite end, the bookend of Salt Creek in a way. Um, and my, my next book is uh, going to be contemporary, um, set in South Australia, but rural South Australia, not related to Salt Creek at all in terms of... Um, of, of it having any connection with my family or with any kind of family members or family stories, anything like that. But I think it is going to be a little bit, at the moment, I want it to be a little bit more hopeful instead of it just, um, it's not that it's not the Wolf Island ends with it, we're all doomed because I don't think that. And, and I don't think that's exactly what the book's saying. It's saying there is hope while people care for each other still. Um, while they're resourceful, uh, it, there is always something there. It's just the world is changing. And I, yeah, so with this new book, I think I'm going to be looking at um, how do people start building something new? Um, but it is, it is, I think that side of it will be um, not terribly explicit. I like to focus on character and place more than those kind of big ideas. But I, that's how I can sort of see it emerging. Mm. You think you'll be drawing on uh, current experiences? That's what I'm not sure. I think it's really interesting. Um, <laughs> Any toilet paper fights? <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to be so hard to ignore, yeah. I think. It is such a cataclysmic change and it affects everyone. And in that way, it's very different from climate change. In climate change, we can pretend is something that's happening elsewhere. Um, you know, that I'm sure in England, they think, oh, wasn't that terrible fires happening in Australia? Without thinking that could be us. You know, there's that famous William Gibson quotation, 
you know, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. But COVID virus is different in that it is evenly distributed. It is affecting every single country. So I think it's going to be hard to hard to completely ignore that. And it's something that that fiction's going to have to grapple with in new ways. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of writers who are thinking, what do we do with this? Mm. And publishers thinking, will people buy this? Or will people just think, um, I'd just like some entertainment. How about three years of rom-coms? If that's all right, that would be really good. Yes. Um, yeah, so I, I really don't know. But if I did write about it, it probably wouldn't be incredibly overt. Mm. It would be just a kind of acknowledgement. And I, I just, I, I'm really keen to, I'm really keen for realist fiction to slightly represent the real world that we live in instead of an ossified realist world. Yes. Um, Yes. Yeah. So that's my kind of tussle as a writer, I think. Your book is, in a way, a climate fiction dystopia. Uh, it's also a kind of fable. I think it's also got elements of political thriller in it. Mm. But you really want it to be seen as something more grounded in reality and, and literature, don't you? I, 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 I do. That's how, that's how I conceived of it, as a, as a book that... It's a family story. It's a story about a woman who's estranged from her daughter, whose granddaughter appears on her doorstep, and how they come to some kind of rapprochement and move forward. And, you know, there's a kind of collective growth, how we create family around us. And for me, all of the climate material is just the background to that. Of course, it has to affect plot because climate change does affect plot, but it is not the subject of the book. And, and, and the concern that I would have about those things is that if you label something climate change or dystopia, it has a sort of distancing effect. We think it is something that's happening away off in the distance, so we're okay. It's almost, despite what you might think, a comfort if you say something's a dystopia. It's not now. But I guess my point really is, is that things are happening now. and you know, this is the real world that we occupy, where the, some of those things are happening in different parts of the world. And, you know, there's room in fiction to address those things or to shine a light on them, to think about them, even if they're only a backdrop to your main action and your characters. Yes. Yeah. Well, Lucy, thank you very much for a very beautiful and thought-provoking book. And thank you for this lovely conversation. Thank you to our audience for listening. Please buy a copy of Wolf Island if you haven't bought it before. Support Lucy Trelaw and all our Australian writers and writers around the world. And if you'd like to support Newcastle Writers Festival, you can also find a place to donate on the website. Thank you very much for joining us today and enjoy the rest of the festival. Best wishes to everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you. <laughs> Bye.